If you're old like me, you remember the greatest era of the NBA. Late 80s to mid 90s. And that's not just because I'm a Chicago Bulls fan. It's actually because back then, it was more like MMA fighting than it was basketball half the time. Uh, Let me bring you back to 1989. This is the era of the Detroit Pistons when they were known as the bad boys, all right? Now, uh, even though I was born in Kalamazoo, about four months old until fourth grade, I lived in Chicago. So when I moved back uh, to Michigan, when my folks moved to Flint, uh, everybody around me in Flint were Pistons fans, and I was like, oh, no, I'm sticking true. I'm going to be a Bulls fan. Now, it reminds you, this was not the best time to be a Bulls fan because Michael Jordan had just come into the league and uh, the Pistons were winning championships, uh, in fact, back to back. The Bulls just couldn't get past them. And part of the reason was because of the bad boys. The bad boys were Bill Ambeer, Rick Mahorn, Dennis Rodman, uh, Joe Dumars, who I don't know how he could be classified as a bad boy. He's like the nicest guy. Like I, even I like Joe Dumars. But the worst, the worst of all of them was Isaiah Thomas. Oh, I couldn't stand Isaiah Thomas. I, like five foot 10, punk, always talking smack fighting, getting in altercations, and the fact that he's really good also, like, drove me nuts. Uh, 1989, the Pistons had instituted something called the Jordan Rules. And the Jordan Rules were basically how they were trying to stop Michael Jordan, which was nearly impossible. But what they decided is they were going to try to make him drive left every time. He was going to get double, sometimes triple teamed. And if he got by anybody, they were to hit him. Okay, elbow, hip, shoulder, whatever it meant, whatever it took. Now, the coach is like, oh, we never wanted to hurt him. And I'm like, if you see some of the pictures of some of the things that happened to Michael Jordan from the bad boys, I'm like, yeah, I don't think that holds a whole lot of water, Chuck Daly. So in 1989, the Bulls went out and got Bill Cartwright. He was going to be the enforcer. Bill Cartwright was a seven-foot center who was going to hold down the middle of the floor, was going to allow Jordan a little bit more breathing room, and he would make sure that they didn't beat up Jordan. Isaiah and Cartwright did not like each other. This particular game, near the end of the season, when the Bulls and the Pistons are fighting to see who's going to be in first place to get into the playoffs and have home court advantage, they're playing... Cartwright gets a pass, goes up to dunk, and Isaiah Thomas, all five foot ten of him, runs in and just smashes seven foot tall Cartwright, knocks the ball out of his hands, and Cartwright kind of comes down on Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't like it. Isaiah swings a wild, cheap left that lands right on Cartwright's face. Straight up, wow. And then the greatest thing happened. 
and I'll tell you at the end of the sermon. Right now, I want you to flip over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 23 this morning as we continue in our series. This letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the city of Colossae. And he's got some things that he wants to tell them about, to remind them of, to strengthen them in this morning. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to spend a little bit of time looking at these verses and then have a little bit of a conversation of how I think it applies to us. It's going to require us, though, to go back a little bit, and then I'll tell you what great thing happened when Isaiah Thomas punched Bill Cartwright in the face. Read with me. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with the idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. What I'd like to do this morning is start back in verse 16 and walk through to verse 22. I think that there's a few things that we can understand from the text. And then I want to kind of take verse 23 kind of on its own, because to be honest, verse 23 is really difficult. This whole passage, to be honest, is kind of difficult, and I'll explain why as we begin to walk through it. But I do think that it leads us in to some things that God wants to say to us today. So jump back with me to verse 16. Therefore, anytime you see a therefore, you have to say, what's the therefore? Hey, you guys are good. What's the therefore, therefore? Well, it will connect to Bill Cartwright and Isaiah Thomas, and we will talk about that near the end of the sermon. Hold on to it. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In other words, those things, like they were just pointing us towards something. But now that Christ is here and you are in Christ, Christ as the light of the world shows us what we need and how to live and what we gain in him and through him. Those other things, they couldn't help you anyway. They were just like a shadow pointing. Now the light is here. You're not to live in the shadow anymore. You get to live in Christ. And he goes on to say, don't let anyone who delights in false humility, worship of angels, disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Now look what he says in verse 19. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, 
grows as God causes it to grow. They've lost connection with the head, that is Jesus. Paul's already explained to us how Jesus is the head of his body, the church. Okay, that's back in chapter 1, verse 18. Paul describes that very clearly. Christ is the head of his body, the church. And he said there are people out there that they talk a big game. They've got all these things that they say they know or that they've seen, but they've lost connection with the head. Which, what he's saying is they've lost connection with the church. You know, I say connected to the head, you're connected to the church. The, the church is the body that is connected to the head as Christ. You've heard me talk about this. You need the church and the church needs you. The word church is, is it's just a generic word that means gathering. So if you never gather church together, you're not the church. And if you're never with the body, then you're not with the head. If you lose connection to the head, you die. You can lose a foot, and the rest of the body, if it's connected to the head, still lives. You lose the head, nothing else continues living. And he says they've lost connection. They're not connected to the head. They're not a part of the body of Christ. That happens when, when we give our lives to him, when we participate in a local fellowship, in a local gathering. Uh, there's a story uh, that I read once. A gentleman who, a uh, long time, participant in the church, he and his wife. His wife got sick, and she passed away. And he was in a depression, and just honestly didn't really want to see anybody or talk to anybody. And he just kind of stopped coming to church, participating in the relationships. And after a couple months, uh, the pastor had called on him and finally set up a meeting and came over. And the gentleman was a little bit embarrassed the pastor was there, but also thankful that the pastor had come. And it's the middle of winter, so he had a fire going in the living room, and he kind of just said hi and walked into the living room and sat down together. And he just kind of sat in silence for a little bit. And the pastor got up, and he took the tongs for the fireplace, and he grabbed one log, and he just set it on the side of the fire. And as it was removed from all the other logs, it stopped burning, began to smoke and cool off. And the pastor just sat back down. The older gentleman, after another minute or so of silence, stood up, walked over to the fire, and grabbed the tongs, picked up the piece of wood that was now just sitting there off on its own and he put it back in the fire and instantly it kindled back to life. He set the tongs down, he looked at the pastor and said, thanks, I'll see you next Sunday. He didn't have to say anything at all. We need the body and the body needs us. Paul says to the Colossians, they've lost connection with the head. He goes on. And says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. So, 
We know that Paul is writing to the Colossians because they're dealing with some sort of infiltration into the church. We don't know who these people are that Paul is kind of fighting against, who he's warning the Colossians against. Uh, scholars have kind of like debated this for a long time, but the truth is, is we don't know. So there's a couple of thoughts that there are some clues in the text that give us some idea, but it's probably some combination of religious Jews in the area that were trying to tell the new Christians that unless they kept all the food laws, that they weren't actually going to be uh, loved by God or connected to God. If they didn't keep all of the Mosaic laws, they weren't good followers of God. And Paul wants to make sure they understand that that is absolutely false. Probably also some sort of combination of some pagan religions that the Gentiles had probably been a part of before they came to faith in Christ. And a lot of times we think that uh, ancient Jews were the ones that were like really religious. And Gentiles, the, the pagans, they were just like, didn't have any religion at all? That's not true at all. There were some very religious pagan Gentiles that kept laws that were incredibly strict and harsh in self-discipline, trying so hard to, to prove that they were worthy of their God's affection. And we don't know exactly who it is that Paul is kind of fighting against when he's writing this, but it's probably some combination of those two things. Paul's like, those are false. That is not where you're going to find life. You're only going to find life in Christ. That brings us to verse 23. Paul says, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, when you hear the word sensual indulgence, I don't know what it brings to your mind, but the writers of the NIV, I think, were intending that we would think of like sexual sin or immorality or something of that nature. And that could be what Paul's getting at, but we're not entirely sure. Uh, the truth is this particular verse is actually really tricky to kind of translate. Uh, the more work that scholars have done with it, um, there's a lot of different ways that they kind of talk about the, the last few words and what we think Paul is getting at. Uh, I like actually how the ESV says it, but I'm going to give you um, what I learned from Dr. Garland. He wrote the NIV application commentary uh, on Colossians, and uh, along with a couple of other scholars, this is how he explains how, with the punctuation that's found in the original language, how he would write it. So he says this. He says, the punctuation of this complex sentence could be, such regulations, though having a reputation for wisdom in the areas of self-imposed worship, the humiliation and severe treatment of the body, but are without any value, those lead to the gratification of the flesh. In other words, what he's saying is that those that work so hard to prove their worth by being self-disciplined and treating their body harshly to try to get rid of the flesh, okay? The improper desires actually create more improper desire because of why they're doing it. It's all about themselves, how good they can be, how strong they can work, how good they look on the outside. They're doing all the right things, but it's all about them. 
he goes on to say this, the explanation of the grammar means that the errorists, that's what he calls them because we don't know who they are, those in error, the errorists suffered from the law of unintended consequences. Their religious aim to serve God and to restrain the flesh only succeeded in serving the flesh and unleashing its power. He goes on to give this quote. I want you, you can, you can read along with me. I think it's really helpful. Man's attempt to sacrifice for himself does not bring him the ultimate freedom he seeks because it represents an increasing reliance upon the self and it is precisely from self-reliance that man must be freed. The letter to the Colossians declares that Christ has already accomplished for us all that we might attempt to earn by our own puny efforts. The opponents rely on human attainment. Christians rely on Christ's atonement. Christ's death on the cross. Paul's saying, look, they're, they're trying so hard. They're, they're doing things that are not necessarily bad things. They're self-disciplined. They're fasting and they're staying away from certain things and the prohibitions and the rules and the laws, but they're doing it all on their own power. They think they have to somehow earn it. The Christian is not about how I can earn my salvation. The Christian rests securely and safely in the work that Christ has done on the cross. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't be good enough. You can't work hard enough. It's not up to you and how great you can be and how self-disciplined you can be and how strong you can be if you don't rest in the work that Christ did for you, you will never find rest at all. It is in Christ and his death on the cross that we actually find life. So what are we supposed to do with these verses? You wanna know the truth? It's actually a pretty difficult passage to apply. The reason it's difficult to apply is because we're not real sure who Paul was like arguing against and what all they believed. And so it's hard then to say, well, what does that look like in our culture today? How do we take what Paul was saying then and apply it to today? I do think that there are a couple of things that we can look at. And so I wanna try to offer those to you now and then we'll get back to the therefore. So the first thing is if you grew up in a stream of Christianity, or a church where they told you that following the rules is the key to the Christian life, doing the right things, staying away from the wrong things, that that would somehow earn you favor, allow you to be looked up to, that that would earn God's love and respect, Paul would have a real problem with that. Um, I went to a good church growing up, but I didn't really love Jesus. I knew about Jesus, I prayed a prayer when I was five years old that as much as a five-year-old can understand, I meant it. But when I got into middle school in Flint, Michigan, being a little kid, I wanted to fit in. So I, I was way more concerned with the powers of the world than I was about Jesus. I cared way more about what other people thought of me. I wanted to make sure that they thought I was cool wanted to fit in, so I, I was like, I'm gonna do whatever they do. That was like uh, swearing. 
I swore, like, you'd be shocked at what this seventh grade mouth uh, could produce. Uh, the music that I listened to, it's all rap. Loved it, loved rather like I was all in. The way that I treated people, the way that I talked about people, the way that I tried to put people down to raise myself up. That's kind of how I felt like I was going to get notoriety, how I was going to fit in, how, how I was going to gain acceptance. And I went hard at it. People thought I was funny and cool because here's this little white kid in Flint who's got a mouth running a mile a minute, willing to be dirty on the soccer field when he's playing and, and treat people disrespectfully. And that was like a cool thing because like, you got to be hard. So that was me from like sixth grade until 10th grade. And... Uh, I met this girl at this church event. This is a crazy, I went to church all the time, went to youth group. I did all that, but like, I didn't love Jesus. I didn't act like I even knew Jesus. If you'd have asked some of my friends at school, they would have never thought that I was like a Christian. Or they might've thought I was a Christian because many of them would have said they were Christians too. It just didn't mean anything at all. I went to this church event and I met this girl. And I thought she was kind of cute and cool. And she apparently thought that I was kind of cute and cool. And so we didn't live close to each other. We had to talk on the phone. This is back when phones were attached to walls with cords, all right? Long distance bills we had to pay. And I, and I remember calling her and I was talking to her on the phone and uh, it was probably the second or third time that we had talked on the phone. And I was like all excited because I was like, I'm gonna have a girlfriend. This would be awesome. And I remember I swore. I finally got comfortable enough to like Use my normal language, and I swore. And that was, like, so normal for me. It was, what was weird is that I hadn't sworn the first two times we talked. But when I did, she, she got quiet for a minute. And I don't remember exactly what she said, but she's like, oh, I didn't know you swear. That's kind of ugly. Excuse me, girl. I was shocked. I knew a lot of other kids that went to church. I didn't know anybody that took their faith serious. All my friends at youth group, they didn't swear as much as me, but they swore like me. They listened, they wanted to listen to a lot of the music that I had. And because of her and a youth pastor that began to invest in my life, I started to ask myself some questions. Am I a Christian? What does that actually mean? Should I actually act different if I'm, actually a Christian. And it wasn't overnight. It was over the course of a number of months. Jesus just captured my heart. All of a sudden, I was like, Jesus, I, I, I do want to be a Christian. I, I do want to follow you. I, I'm afraid to like stand out, but if that's what it takes, that's what I'll do. And God began to transform my heart and my life. But I got connected in with some really fundamentalist Baptist folks at that point. They weren't, wasn't the church that I even attended. It was church that this girl attended. And, and they started telling me things like, well, if you really love Jesus, then, then you should probably, you need to get rid of all of your rap music. And I was like, dang, for real? Like all of it, all my rap tapes, I got to get rid of my rap, I got to burn them or something? They're like, yeah, you got to get, and now to be fair, most of my rap tapes probably didn't need to be gotten rid of. But then, then they were like, yeah, if you really love Jesus, then you'll only listen to Christian music. Now, if you ever heard DC Talk in the late 80s, like that was like a tough pill to swallow. 
Well, the truth was, I was in for Jesus. I love Jesus. And I was like, oh, that's what it means. I got to burn all my rap tapes and I got to listen to DC Talk. Okay, I guess, like, I love Jesus, so I'm in. And then they came at me and were like, if you really love Jesus, then you won't just listen to Christian music, you'll listen to acapella Christian music. I was like, woo, that's like, that's really hard. But all right, so I had about six months of acapella vocal band. Like, <laughs> we're talking some rough stuff, people, okay? But I was down. Why? Because I love Jesus. And if that's what it meant to love Jesus, like, I was going to do it. But you know what I found? You know what I realized? All the rules was not gaining me more of God's love. I I just transferred my idol from the kids at school to the pastors at church. It wasn't about Jesus. They started telling me that it was about doing all these right things. Paul would have had a problem with that. If you grew up in a church that said, look, look, you're only in if you do X, Y, and Z. If you don't go to movie theaters and don't dance and don't mow on Sundays, like that's what's going to get you in. Paul's going to have a problem with that. If they are rules that have been set up by men that are not rules that God gave us in his word. Now, I just offended Baptists and my little comment about mowing the lawn offended some of y'all reform folks. So I got two. Now I'm going after Pentecostals. All right. So another thing that I think Paul would be against is if you grew up in a church that told you that you don't have the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues. Now hear this in context. Paul spoke in tongues. Paul was pro-speaking in tongues. Uh, I don't believe that tongues went away. There are many in this church that have the gift of tongues. I've asked God for the gift of tongues. He has not given it to me. But I still have the Holy Spirit and all love him. If you have the gift of tongues, praise God. That's an awesome gift. If you've got other gifts, praise God. Those are awesome gifts as well. But if you've ever been told that you are somehow less than because there is a certain gift or set of gifts that you don't have, Paul's going to have a problem with that. All right. I think I've offended most everybody. Let's, uh, let's move on now. What are we supposed to do with all of this? Uh, Now we get to what's the therefore, therefore, okay? Um, I told you about Isaiah Thomas slugging Bill Cartwright in the face. Got all of it. And that's when the greatest thing happened. That little punk Isaiah Thomas broke his hand on Bill Cartwright's face and was out of the game for like the next four or five games. I was like, Whoa! Bill Cartwright was fine. Barely felt like a flea touched him, but Isaiah Thomas's left hand was broke, baby. You see, what Isaiah thought he was doing by taking a cheap shot and socking him in the face wound up putting himself out, which is exactly what Paul is talking about in verses 13 to 15. Anytime I can use the bulls as a Christological figure and the pistons as a satanic figure, I'm all in. All right, work with me, work with me here, people. Jump back to verse 13. Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. 
he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, stripped it away, nailing it to the cross. Friends, that's some fantastic, unbelievably beautiful truth if you believe it. You used to be dead. You used to be an enemy of God. But even while you were God's enemy, Christ died for you. And his death on the cross took all of your guilt and all of your sin and all of your legal indebtedness, Paul says, and canceled it out. <laughs> That's good stuff. Keep walking with me. Sorry, Trent, I know I got a little excited there, buddy. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has stripped it away, nailing it to the cross. I'm using the word stripped there. It's actually kind of what's in the Greek, and there's a reason for it. We'll get to it in just a second. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see that the ruling powers of heaven and on earth thought that they were destroying Christ when they hung him up, when they stripped him naked, when they embarrassed him publicly and crucified him and killed him. They were trying to destroy him, but Jesus flipped the table. They were punching him in the face and breaking their own hand. Listen to this. The rulers and powers of this world thought that they were stripping Christ naked. They thought they were making a mockery of him by hanging him on a cross. They thought they were triumphing over him by killing him there. But the power and paradox of the cross is this. That is, Christ was actually stripping the rulers and authorities naked by showing that they had no real power over him. He was making a mockery of their so-called power and authority by paying the price of humanity's sin. And in actuality, it was Christ who was triumphing over them on the cross. The very thing that they thought was going to lead to their victory led to their downfall. The very humiliation of Christ is what actually led to his triumph. And it will never be about how good you can be, about how hard you can work at it, about how self-disciplined you can be. It will always be about what Christ did for you that you could never have done on your own. His life, his death, his resurrection. When you believe that, when you own that, when you invite him into your life, when you say yes to that, that takes everything pulls it all off. All your legal indebtedness, all your sin, all your striving, it's gone. And you can rest in Christ and his work, not in how good you need to try to be. Friends, that's good news. The very thing that they thought was going to destroy him is the thing that he used to conquer them. And that's good news for us. It reminds me of my favorite video game growing up, Contra. Oh, I loved Contra. Contra was so great. It was like these guys in a jungle and they were like having to break people out and beat like the enemy and they're running around. Bop, 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 So good. But the problem was you only got three lives, okay? And three lives, you could go through them pretty quick. And once you got done with your three lives, you had to start at the very beginning of the game again. Unless you knew the Konami code. Anybody know the Konami code? Oh, Yeah. 
up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, B, A, select, start. Like, I found, like, multiple tattoos of the Konami code. This is just my favorite one. He's got it right there. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, B, A, select, start. If you do that before the screen changes into the player mode, you will get 30 lives. It's a cheat code. It's awesome. Then you didn't have to worry. You just start running through the game. Bah, 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 bah. You didn't care. Like, you bah, bah, bah. they kill you, it's fine. I got 29 more lives. What now, punk? And that's how you would beat the game. The Konami cheat code. Friends, the cross is our cheat code. Christ's atonement by dying on the cross is the cheat code. You don't have to be afraid of the rulers and authorities. You don't have to be afraid of what they might think of you. It's not about how good you can be. It never was. It's not about how self-disciplined you can be. It never was. It was about what Christ did for you and you resting in his finished work, not in yours. Now, this doesn't mean that there's still not work for us to do, that God doesn't want us to care about pursuing holiness. He absolutely does. That's actually next week. But before Paul's going to get us there, Paul wants to make sure that we understand that it's never about how good you can be to earn your way in. That can never get you there. And so, there's two applications as we close. If you're a follower of Christ already, you need to simply glory in this truth and hang on to it and not fall victim to the folks that look like they're saying all the right things or telling you that you need a certain experience or this thing or the other. Hold on to Jesus and his finished work and rest in that. Make sure that he is the one person that you are pursuing and falling in love with and trying to please nobody else. And then there's, I think, some others that are here that right now, maybe today's the day that you need to, for the very first time, put your full weight onto Christ. Yeah, you come to church, you know all about church, you know about Jesus, but it's always been about your effort how much you can do, how good you can be. Does my good stuff outweigh my bad stuff? And today God's calling out to you and saying, will you say yes to me? Will you put your full weight of trust in me in what I've done, not in how good you can be? So I'm gonna ask everybody right now, just close your eyes, bow your heads. If today's the day that you wanna say yes to Jesus and put your full weight on him to say yes to his work and not yours, to invite him into your life, to give him your whole life. I wanna pray for you. And so if that's you, everybody else, just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. This is just for me and and anybody that wants to respond. If that's you, I just want you to raise your hand because I wanna pray for you. Mm -hmm. If today's the day you wanna give your life to Christ for the very first time, if you wanna say yes to him today, I want you just to raise your hand so I can pray for you. Yep. Is there anybody else today? All in. Mm -hmm. If that's you, just pray in your heart the words that I'm about to say. Just say, dear God, I love you so much, but I know it's because you first loved me. 
God, I don't know how to do this Christianity thing all that well. But today I give you permission to come into my life and take over. I won't hold anything back. You can have all of me. I believe in Jesus. I believe in his death on the cross for me and his resurrection from the grave. Today I say yes to Jesus. God, I'm going to need your help. I'm going to need your help to be transformed, to grow, to be the person you want me to be, to be the person I want to be. I give you permission to begin that work. Today I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, some of the greatest words ever uttered come from those verses 13, 14, and 15. Our legal debt has been canceled. Christ has set us free. Not because we deserved it or we were good or we've worked hard or we're special, but because of his great love, his willingness to do it for us. And in that place, when we put our faith and trust in him and his work, man, we find such rest and freedom. It's what we desire. God is setting us free, setting his people free. And that's worthy of our praise this morning. Would you sing with us? Let's stand and continue to worship together.